Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, the work wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. Delighted to be with you here in early in 2009. We're trying to shed a little bit of the topicality of some of our discussions. Um, so I've been encouraged not to discuss specifically date. We want to make our discussions timeless. And in fact, most of the material that is discussed on McLaughlin at Work here on webtalkradio.net is in fact as timeless as management, leadership, employment, the things that we do on a daily basis and enjoy doing it to boot. But you know, one of the facts of uh, life here in the economy that we find ourselves in 2009 is that everything has a time value to it. That which was true at the beginning of 08 is invariably not true today. Um, the large issues of how we feel has changed, all by course of events. And I noticed that in the news the other day, in other words, to put this in a timely reference, uh, the one of the first Saudi tankers that we brought to your attention that had been hijacked off the Gulf of... Aden, off Somalia, was released. They had a picture across most of the world's newspapers of a parachute dropping what was thought to be money. Hello, a little bit of ransom. And uh, off the uh, 500 million barrels or whatever number, 500,000, I guess, barrels of crude went on its merry way because the pirates were paid off, the crew members were released, and the large tanker set sail. So those things that we watch for you and bring to your attention have many resolutions. The Chinese uh, Navy is in place and all is right with the world, presumably. Now, I, I bring this up in terms of timing because the discussions that we have here on McLaughlin at work are real-time discussions with real people who have either by their expertise or their authorship or the companies they control, are all working in a timed environment, and that is the context of today, here early in 2009. And nothing could make that more starkly realistic than the discussion we're going to have today, that you're going to listen to today, have the opportunity to chime in on, and that's with my good friend Laird Post, who is part of Booz and Company. You can hear more of that later. But interestingly for Laird is that one of the examples they used in their reader of capturing the people advantage, and um, I'm sort of sliding into Laird Post as opposed to give you a direct definition because he's going to come on, you're going to be able to hear it. But he has compiled with others of his colleagues at Booz and Company and Booz Allen Hamilton, both, and you'll hear the reasons why they are separated now, that they approached uh, what they thought were thought leaders on human capital. One of the people that they approached was the chairman, Ramalinga Raju, of Satyam Computer Services Limited. And what they discussed there with him in this book, where the channels of learning and systematic metrics support the innovative changes required to prosper in a global economy. All well said and good. The problem with the reader coming out as it recently has, not a problem, except that Mr. Raju is in fact the disgraced chairman of Satcham computer systems, and I may be pronouncing that incorrectly, but he and his family have extensive property and other ventures in the southern Indian city of Hyderabad, Hyderabad, and they have been recently, within the last week, been accused and admitted that they had cooked the books. So here on the one hand, we're talking about human capital. And this guy may, be a very, may have been very good at human capital development and learning systems and metrics and all that stuff, and yet now he's out. Makes you think a little bit of Wall Street. Some people do good in some areas, and they don't do good in others. Well, I want to get you right in with Laird Post. Paul McLaughlin here. McLaughlin at work. Webtalkradio.net. 
Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work here in what could be arguably called the tail end of 2008, a year that will go down in infamy, and I don't think we'll know historically how it's going to be assessed for a very long time. I have the privilege of speaking with a Laird Post this morning here on 31 December. This is a left coast, right coast discussion in which nothing could be more dramatically different than the weather in Los Angeles where Laird Post is currently. I am in New York City in what could be only described as a true winter scene and um, Laird out there in what he has described as only a true California uh, scene. He down from San Francisco in LA for New Year's. Paul McLaughlin, your host here on McLaughlin at Work, webtalkradio.net. Laird Post is a principal with Booz and Company, and uh, we're going to be talking about his expertise. The book, or more importantly, a reader, and uh, perhaps he can describe the difference between the two, interesting compendium of um, thoughts by thought leaders on human capital. The title is Capturing the People Advantage, and I'm going to caution Laird that the, that the whole notion of capturing the people advantage uh, addressed to the leaders by thought leaders might leave some of the audience of McLaughlin at, at work the audio guide, your audio guide to the workplace, thinking that they're being spoken to from on high. So I'm going to ask Laird if he can, and I know he can, to bring the concept of capturing the people advantage down to the people level. But let's start where, let's start where Booze and Company uh, and this particular compendium would like to go. And Laird, how did this book come about, and what are the issues that it addresses? And I'm going to get into 2008 and what the lessons that you have learned, but I think that's much later. When you put this book together, Capturing the People Advantage, why and how? Okay. Well, I think the why is that, that um, companies, first of all, the last 10 years or so have been a period of massive change both in the worldwide uh, economic climate, the demographics, the workforce with uh, some countries having aging populations, some people having a lot of young people, uh, significant social trends. And so the whole, the whole nature of the global workforce has changed, and yet very few companies have adapted the way they manage people to adapt to the changing business requirements. And so um, there, our, our, our point was is that companies really need to reframe and rethink the way that they manage their workforce. And so we went out to talk to uh, who we felt were thought leaders in the area of people management around the world, at companies around the world, to capture what they were doing to adapt their workforce practices to the changing business environment. And. How did you select the companies that, to which you spoke? Well, it's a combination of, of actually some, some uh, uh, professors from academia. Uh, there's three professors who uh, are well-known as experts in the area of leadership and people development. But we also wanted to get a good cross-section of large and small companies, global, uh, with, with a kind of a global focus. That, that um, where they, from our own experience, where they had done some things that, that uh, we felt were quite unique and, and worthy of, of amplifying in the book. Now, uh, leaving, I'd like to depart a, a bit from the book to talk to you, Laird Post. You're a principal at, at Booz and Company, a, a major consulting firm, and you're talking about. Um, human capital, leaving aside what other people have said about it and to address the expertise resident in the likes of yourself and your colleagues at, uh, at Booz & Company who have obviously worked, I, Paul McLaughlin, have worked with 
uh, the leadership of Strategy and Business, which is the quarterly magazine for Booz and Company, but you're a commercial venture that is, uh, is in the business of providing these kinds of insights to uh, corporate America. Uh, one of the things that caught my eye in the book, in part, and, and it was in fact in the introduction that you had a hand in writing, and it's about the human resource professional, that element of the executive suite or those who are trying to get into the executive suite. And it says that in, in, your, um, in your introduction that, quote, many HR professionals have not changed their performance or practices significantly since they started their career. The field, and that is the, I would take generally the field of human resources or capturing the people advantage basically operating on a model that's around 70 years old and has a history of being wedded strictly to compliance. Um, why is it that in the human condition, every, it, we always hear every um, maybe five, every 10 years or so, every five years or so, that we aren't treating people any differently than we have in the past and we have to change and there has to be somebody in charge of that change, whether it's talent management or or the knowledge field, or how we grow it. What, what is it about the human condition and this whole issue of human capital that seems to defy real leadership? <laughs> that's that's a, a really excellent point. I mean, well, first of all, I mean, I think the the human resource function in companies has gone through a lot of evolution. It started out as a personnel department. It was really a transactional administrative function. It evolved to being more about compliance because there were a lot of employment laws that that companies had to comply with. But over the years, it's become more strategically important. And the reason for that is that when you think about how companies achieve competitive advantage versus their, their competitors, it used to be that, that how a company invested its capital or, or whether a company came up with a new technology or something like that was what distinguished one company from another. But in recent years, it's clear that the only true competitive advantage that companies have, because technology can be, du can be quickly copied and duplicated, uh, investment of capital, you know, the techniques of doing that are widely known. And so... <laughs> I like the, the way you put that about investment. I'm sorry, well I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of a very depressed New York thinking about how capital can be wisely invested. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's a good point. But... but Ultimately, the only real advantage that a company has is its people. And, and, and yet, the way that companies have managed people over the, the last 50 years really hasn't changed very much. And yet, there's been all this research done, countless studies uh, in academia and, and uh, industry groups and, and elsewhere that has demonstrated the difference that good human capital or good uh, you know, people practices have on business performance. And yet, very few companies are very good at adapting that research to their own workforces. Okay, but why? Why? Yeah. Well, I think I think partly it's because the people who run those companies, the C-suite people, are are focused on other things. They um, got to their position without um, taking into account these matters, and so it doesn't seem to be important. And then, you, then it comes back to the HR function. In most HR organizations, there, there isn't the right kind of leadership that, that is able to get the attention of the C-suite and to demonstrate what these kinds of people practices, the difference that they can make in a company's performance. Some companies build this into their, you know, have built it into their culture. If you look at General Electric, if you look at Microsoft, and Southwest Airlines, Starbucks, they started the company and they have always had a deep recognition of, of the difference that good leadership and good people practices have on their business performance. And it's a part of their culture. And so as new leaders come into the company, they, they're enculturated into that culture. But in other companies, they don't have that, that level of recognition of this. And, and as uh, new people come into the C-suite, there's new agendas, and they don't seem to understand the difference that this can make in their performance. As a consultant, does a book like this or examples like this, does that have an impact on your client base? Do they say, 
Oh, Mr. Post, thank you for bringing this to my attention about how Toyota operates and Shell operates and Starbucks operates and Wachovia um, uh, uh, of sorts operates. Um, is do, do people? My wife says I haven't changed in 25 years, in spite of what she has repeatedly pointed out our management and personal flaws. So in the human, in the in the, in the capturing the pe uh, people advantage. I'm sort of of an age where I guess the people would say give up. I, I wonder if companies reach that too. But do, do you have success with bringing examples to the fore to people who obviously aren't practicing them or they wouldn't need your kind of consulting services? Do they change? Well, <laughs> well if you could just take data and provide it to somebody and that would change behavior, then nobody would be overweight, nobody would smoke, nobody would have high blood pressure <laughs> because, you know, there's all that. So it takes more than just presenting the data. It really takes showing them the difference that it would make to them in a, in a very, in a way that captures their emotions. And to me, at, when I'm consulting to the C-suite and large organizations, it's, it's showing them the difference it would make in their bottom line, showing the difference it would make in their business performance and their ability to succeed and execute on the business strategy. And if you can show a CEO or you can show others in the C-suite that their careers and their company's success will be enhanced, then uh, we can get their attention. But it takes more than just saying, hey, here's all this data, so you might as well change, because obviously it takes a lot more than that. Um, as is my way, I have a tendency to jump around and try and keep things interesting by doing that. There's no attempt whatsoever to put you on the spot, but just to take advantage of it. Is there, in the human capital arena, is there a gender difference in the ability to manage? Well, actually, there's been some um, data. I can't remember where I saw it, but it was fairly recent. Um, that actually looked at that, whether men or women were better managers, and et, et cetera. And um, the data has shown that, that no, there really isn't any uh, different, you know, there isn't any significant difference that men are better or women are better, uh, that, that uh, there's, a, you know, a lot of evidence that there's a lot of good uh, and bad managers that are, you know, uh, among women and men. So uh, not really seeing that as very um, significant as a factor of what drives us. Uh, always a question that we ask, and I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to get to a, a different theme, which is a, um, you know, a couple of a couple of different aspects of managing people. But one of the distinctions that is drawn early on appears to be that. Uh, there is, I don't know how exactly to put it, but there, maybe there's a different quality of talent management if you're working in the service industry versus the manufacturing. And then secondly, large corporations versus small. But could you address the, the human capital issue as it distinguishes, uh, I don't know what the statistics are in America, and we'll talk about globally later, but um, in America, uh, what is the service industry population versus the I don't know, manufacturing, for, for lack of a better term? Uh, let me ask you that then succinctly. Is there a difference in human capital management between the services industries and the manufacturing industries? No. I mean, I mean in other words, the, the, the best practices, the best ways that accomplish the most in terms of uh, improving employee engagement and productivity and business performance, it's the same in every industry. It's not as if it's, it's different in different environments, but the, you have to tailor your practices to the workforce. And so <clears throat> when you have a manufacturing workforce, a unionized workforce, for example, versus a white-collar service workforce uh, or a sales workforce, you, you, know, you, you have to do a lot of uh, segmentation and tailoring of of your practices for the workforce, but the best practices really aren't different across industries or across manufacturing or service. Okay. Um, I guess it does, though, put a different definition on talent. Everybody wants to be recognized as a person, but clearly there are levels of 
uh, sophistication of the things that you're working on that would, I would imagine, maybe this is unfair, but it, it, does it have a tendency for the head of HR, and this is discussing thought leaders in human capital, uh, speaking with Laird Post of Booze & Company and his strategy and business reader, in companies that are more white-collar, if you will, does the human resources person have a better seat at, in the C-suite, or uh, does, that, does, it, does it break down as to what kind of business you're in, what role or level the human resources person achieves? Yeah, it really isn't so much about the industry as it is the individual, whether the individual is able to establish the credibility and bring to the table the value uh, to the C-suite that, that, the, you know, the, that managing people can, can deliver. That's what really makes the difference. And so I've seen outstanding HR leaders in manufacturing, I've seen outstanding HR leaders in service, and I've seen poor ones in, in both of those as well. So it really depends on, on the individual. But you're, you did hit on one point that I think is really significant, and that is, is that one of the big mistakes that companies make is they, uh, in, in, the, in the hope of being egalitarian, they treat everybody the same. And um, you know, while I would argue that it makes sense to treat everybody fairly and with respect, uh, it, it, everybody is not the same in terms of different workforce segments having the different ability to contribute value. And, ha and, and, ha and, and have different areas of the workforce have different motivators. And if you treat everybody the same, you end up over-investing on some people and under-investing in others, and you don't get the best results. So what the best companies do is they understand the different segments of their, of their workforce, and they have specific strategies for each that, that help to get the most engagement, the best performance, and the, and the best results from those, each of those segments. Um, I, I think what I will do right now, and I hadn't uh, thought about doing this, so this will be putting you on the spot a little bit, but as with anything here on McLaughlin at work, if we don't like it, we can take it out. Uh, I would like you to, to give a, um, a uh, uh, unsolicited, except for now, uh, testimonial about Booze & Company. I know you guys have, uh, have changed your stripes a little bit. I believe that uh, Booze Allen and Hamilton or the defense contracting side were sold off to the Carlisle Group. I believe in 2008, but you as a spokesperson, if you will, here for Booz & Company. Uh, what is Booz & Company, and what is your role in it, and why are you as good or better than anybody else in what you do? <laughs> well, you're right about putting me on the spot. Well, well basically, uh, Booz & Company split off from Booz Allen Hamilton earlier this year, and essentially uh, we had a business that was kind of a strategy, a global strategy consulting firm, as well as a, a firm that was focused primarily on serving the U.S. government. And we were all in one firm. And, uh, and, and so it, didn't, it, it created a lot of challenges in terms of uh, you know, how we hire people and what, we, what the investments we need to make, et cetera. So we split the company into um, a company that serves exclusively the United States government, which is Booz Allen Hamilton, and Booz and Company, which is the global strategy consulting firm. Might, might, I, might I add that your timing was exquisite? Well, yeah, I, I agree that the, the timing, it couldn't have been better. But uh, it, it really made sense because uh, you really needed to operate businesses differently if you're primarily serving the U.S. government versus serving global companies, uh, you know, in, in helping the C-suite in developing their strategies. So that's, that's sort of why the split occurred. And I think, you know, what makes us different, I mean, we, we, have, we have competitors and so forth, but one of the things that we really feel distinguishes us is our ability to not only come up with the right strategy based on insights of, you know, for a given industry, but we also have the ability to help our clients to execute the strategy. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I, I missed that. Uh, that, we, that. That in addition to being able to help companies to develop the right business strategy for, for their organizations, we also have the ability to help them to execute the strategy. And uh, other, our competitors will help them to develop the strategy and then they leave. 
and they leave it to the company to figure out how to how to get that done. And we have the ability to, to come in and help them to actually make the strategy happen. And in the case of Laird Post as a principal in Booz and Company, you both uh, sell the assignment and then uh, conduct the study and then assist in the execution? Yes. I mean, what I do specifically is, is I lead our, our human capital management business. And so when we are developing a strategy for a company about, you know, should, should we acquire a company, should we restructure, should we get into this business or out of this business, et cetera, what I do is I help to get all of the people and the change issues addressed. Because when you think about a company changing their business strategy, that has to happen through the, through the acts of people. And very often, companies forget to deal with um, how they're compensating people, how they're uh, developing them, how they're training them, how they're uh, recruiting them. They don't deal with those issues and how those things have to change to support the new strategy. And so part of my job is to get all the people programs aligned so that the company can execute their strategy effectively and people are rewarded for the right things and, and, and not for the, for the wrong things. Right. Uh, well put. And uh, I appreciate that. And I'm sure that both uh, John Gage and Art Kleiner will think you did a superb job on that. <laughs> and I hope that will be... They will, they will think well of McLaughlin at work for, uh, for asking the question the way we did and, and for um, Larry Post being available on the West Coast today to, uh, to discuss it. The book is Capturing the People Advantage. It is a compendium. It is a reader uh, about thought leaders on human capital. And I, Paul McLaughlin, here McLaughlin at work, the, your audio guide to the workplace here on webtalkradio.net, tail end of 2008. In fact, you couldn't get much more tail end, uh, speaking with, uh, with Laird Post. Let's, um, I, you know, I, I just am very uncomfortable. I've been in the business uh, for many, many years, uh, the business generally of management and, and have been in positions where people management was an important element. Uh, and, I, and I've watched the morphing of the expertise move in a variety of directions. Uh, and I'm going to jump to what the, the, the point that I was going to make uh, later, but I think it's an important one because later I'm going to talk about, I'd like to ask you how, whether we're in the midst of a real fundamental shift as a result of 2008 so that while not taking away at all to the importance of capturing the people advantage and some of the tactics that are used by successful people, that we're in a new era. Maybe we've moved from the wooden bat to an aluminum bat in, uh, in baseball or some other dramatic change. And I have feelings about that, but those are unimportant compared to your expertise. You've been around this, and I'd like to get to that. But I would sum up um, in sort of a role, one, two things. One is on the program here and talking to experts, we've had the thought of the, of the devil's advocate in the uh, in the in the suite uh, as being a successful a necessary ingredient to a successful company, um, and I and I'm going to ask you your opinion about whether that is a role of the human resources person in part to take the position of the folks in the company and that that's a devil's advocate role and whether that is successfully done or not, uh, and secondly is to ask whether this whole issue of globalization, whether the world is flat or not, um, whether that as a separate issue is, is an important one for human resources and that, the, and, and, and that uh, trying to learn from what is done by Toyota or an Indian outsourcing company, how relevant that will be. Uh, but to the first point, could you address that? You know, what you're referring to is, is should the human resource department sort of be the, uh, the advocate for the employees? And my answer is that's a part of the role, and, and there's really no other part of the organization that can be that. But if the HR department focuses just on that, then they, they will not be successful because, uh, frankly, 
it has to be in the context of help, you know, the, the purpose of the HR department should be to help the organization be more successful and make better decisions around people. And so if all the HR department does is advocate for the people, there's, there's, there's a piece missing in terms of what's best for the business. And, and, and there has to be a balance between what's best for the business and what's best for the employee. And, and obviously you've got to achieve that balance because you need the employees to be committed and engaged and productive. Uh, and so you have to take into account their needs, but you have to do it in the context of what does the business need to do to succeed? Because uh, those HR departments who just focus on what will make the employees happy uh, are, are not going to be effective in helping the business succeed. Yeah, although it, it, it always, it, I don't know, how, I, I'm dating myself when I say this, but there, there, there does appear to be a gap between the expression that that person and that presumably that HR person is a people person. The notion of being a people person seems to still somehow indicate some softness to it, uh, something that's not aligned with the business strategy, that they're more interested in a life-work balance than they are achieving the company goals. Um, and maybe coming back to the opening comment uh, that uh, FedEx Grounds Brown made about the history of being wedded uh, strictly to compliance, and they operate in a model that's been around 70 years. C could you give me an example specifically of what the old, I'm going to use the word paradigm, I haven't heard that recently. What was the old paradigm? What's the old model that's been around 70 years? And what do you, Laird Post, consider to be the new model that will have to replace it? Okay. Well, the, the old model was HR as a uh, administrative overhead function that, uh, you know, got employees on the payroll and administered their benefits and, and uh, you know, dealt with uh, transactional issues and compliance issues. And that model... I mean, those are still functions that HR needs to do, but but uh, those functions are are uh, not adequate. They're not sufficient for HR to deliver value today. There's a north because of globalization, because of huge shifts in the labor market, because of the changing nature of work, uh, and because of as you say, you know, competing in a flatter world. Because of all those things. HR must be much more than that. They must be uh, able to understand where people make the difference in the business and how to create competitive advantage through people. And that takes a lot more strategic thinking and capability than simply a function of administration and compliance. And in most companies, most larger companies particularly, those administrative and compliance functions have been outsourced because they are their need to do, but they're low value. And the best HR uh, organizations focus more on the strategic functions that make more of a difference in the business, in the businesses. Do you have an example of a company where the head of HR, in spite of the chief executive officer, had an impact or is the HR derivative of what is this, the rest of the C-level suite leadership? In other words, can you, is there an example where somebody was such a brilliant and, and um, complete HR professional that in fact they changed the business? Or does it require a CEO to uh, acknowledge the weaknesses in the organization recognize that the people talent is important and bringing in somebody who can affect that change. Yeah. Well, you know, I've seen, um, I've seen some very, very effective HR leaders make a significant difference. But the reality is, if you don't have a CEO who profoundly understands the value of people uh, and what difference people management makes on the business's performance, it's going to be very hard for, for HR to make the kind of difference that it has the potential of making. You know, a great example of a CEO who really gets this is, uh, 
is the CEO of PepsiCo, um, Indra Nuri. And, uh, you know, PepsiCo is quite a unique organization. They've always been known as a leader in how they manage people. And it's part of why they're so successful. But she has a very profound uh, commitment to this. In fact, the bonuses of, of PepsiCo executives are 50% are 50% driven by how effectively the executive manages talent, uh, and and that is remarkable because in, if you look at executive compensation, generally the kinds of things that executives are rewarded for is usually mostly financial matters. You know, business uh, performance, the stock price, the the shareholder value, the the uh, profit. What PepsiCo does that's quite unique is they say that we're going to, when we look at your compensation, half of it is going to be based on how well you manage your people and you develop your talent. Because we think that makes such a difference in our performance that we want you to focus your attention on it. And that is why year after year, PepsiCo is, is a leader. You know, they're, they're having some challenges now as, as every uh, uh, organization is, but over time, They've been extremely successful because of that level of commitment to leveraging their talent across their business. Uh, you know, it's very interesting that you bring that up because that was where I was going before I sidetracked myself into the um, into the devil's advocate piece. Uh, and I I would offer, for the sake of listening to your response, that. And I was working. I worked in the management of the in, in the investment banking field that tarnished and, and frankly no longer existing field. There are no more investment banks. We're all different kinds of banks now. Um, but it was once said to me when I was early in the business that the only thing that accurately will direct people's energies is how they are compensated and compensated for what. And as I was reading through Capturing the People Advantage and, and talking about all of the execution issues and all of those elements that go into affecting people's work effort and output, the fact that I would have offered that how you compensate people and for what is a primary driver of their performance and then you say that Pepsi is unique in basically saying the same thing. No, no, I'm, I, I, actually, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that, and, and I want to make a real big difference because it's not compensation. I'm saying that 50% of executives' compensation at PepsiCo are based on how they manage their talent. Yeah, that's, that's what not, I mean, though. That, okay, that's, that's, that's precisely my point. In other words, they are incentivized, terrible word, they are incented to spend a lot of time on talent because that's how they're compensated. If they were compensated on moving from uh, glass to a different, more uh, uh, bio-acceptable form of container, then they'd go out and do that. Yeah. You get what you reward. You get what you reward. And, and to some extent, and I'm going to lead into this in the extent that you've worked in financial services, that that's one of the, one of the issues that has been very much in the news is the fact that a lot of the money, the profit that was generated out of the financial services industry basically went from because of packaging bad deals and people lugged away millions of dollars that proved out not to be profitable investments. In this case, I think we're saying the same thing about PepsiCo, which is they reward people for focusing on talent uh, and, and that directs where uh, a, a an executive would put his or her time. Exactly, and in investment banking, people were rewarded for making these deals, but not, uh, you know, not what wasn't rewarded was whether was the risk, uh, you know, just the long-term value and all that and all that stuff. So a lot of bad behavior was rewarded, and so you got a lot of it, and it's. It's part of how we got to what we got to today. It also, though, you know, developed insane levels of compensation that really had very little uh, bearing on creating real value. Correct, but nobody, nobody from uh, there were a few 
there were a few agencies uh, at year-end compensation pools who would observe that this compensation is crazy. Yeah. From 1992, say, fifth, the last 15 years, it made no rational sense. Yeah. But nobody else bought that. So it, it, when you're talking about the evolution of human resources and, and the capital advantage, why is it? that a PepsiCo would be virtually unique in rewarding people looking at talent, where in other comp companies, um, they, the rewards come from doing other things, and therefore people don't focus on talent management. Yeah. Well, I think it, it comes back to kind of a lack of enlightenment. I mean, because there's so much data. There's 30 years of very consistent, compelling um, studies that have been done in, in top uh, academic institutions and, and elsewhere that show time and time again these practices these practices make a difference uh, you know there's a correlation between doing this and how the business performs and all that stuff but but there's very few people at the top that have the level of enlightenment that you see say in in, in PepsiCo's case or in General Electric's case I mean General Electric obviously well-renowned uh, Jeffrey Email has said uh, as did uh, as did uh, Jack Welch and, and other predecessors, that they spend something like 40% of all their time on managing talent and on developing leaders because there's, you know, a, a clear relationship between having great leaders and business performance, and that's worthy of 40% of, of his time. Uh, that's baked into the General Electric culture. Uh, so, interesting, though, if I may interject. I think if, if people who had studied GE, that GE was probably as well known for, for the ascendancy of talent and, and how you select it and how you groom it, and I think their university or however they you know, put together yep. really an academic exercise, they were equally well known as, as sort of viciously cutting out the bottom 10 to 20%. Yeah. So not only was it an execution, it was literally an execution of the bottom of the of the talent pool as and and I think probably people would remember that more than the uh, more lofty goals of, of getting people at the top to succeed. Well, yeah, obviously it, it, it's a business focus and that's a strategy that has worked quite well for them. Others have tried to copy it and have had dismal failure. So it, you know that kind of speaks to that that the talent strategy for every company needs to be unique to that business and that culture. Um, Laird Post, speaking with him, he is out on the West Coast. Here we are, McLaughlin at work. Uh, this probably will air in 2009, which will um, make allow Laird to become a sage now as we move into <laughs> looking into the forward. The book was uh, put together in 2008, a, a, a year of enormous uh, shifts. Uh, in the eco global economy, I mean, it, it, it just, you, you, you don't know where it's going to stop. And, and having been out in, in on the West Coast uh, recently and talking to people, I know that there is a different sense. Uh, and maybe I'll address that, ask Laird that first before we get it. Is, is this which is going on and its effect on, on human capital, is there something different about the northeast axis where we're living with uh, Mark Dreyer and Bernard Madoff and uh, you know, the investment community and philanthropy and then out in the west coast where maybe financial services is not such an important issue, it's more entertainment, they're more concerned about an actor strike than they are about um, what's going on in Palm Beach. Is, there, is, is capturing the people advantage it, it, it seems to me that there's a lot of, uh, how is it, Tip O'Neill said, all politics is local. Isn't there a lot about capturing the, the people advantage that doesn't allow it to be anything other than considered as a local phenomena? Huh, that's interesting. Actually, uh, what we're seeing is more of a movement to try and look very broadly at the global workforce. You know, most companies today either are global or are profoundly affected by uh, global issues and global competition. It's, you know, that wouldn't be true for uh, a small retailer or, or a hospital or something like that, but, or government. 
but when you look at most commercial businesses, they're affected by global competition. And, and so while uh, many issues are, in fact, local and there are differences in th what the challenges are in different localities, uh, the, the fact is that, is that uh, companies need to take a broader view and need to take into account not just the learnings, but what's happening in other geographies because uh, they, they do profoundly affect how uh, companies need to operate going forward. And we would say there's a new normal. There, you know, I think the business world uh, is profoundly changed and we're never going to go back. This isn't a little cyclical blip that, that uh, everything's going to get back to the way it was. You know, at some oh point. damn, Laird! I thought you, that, that's not not what I, I'm going to report you to, uh, Mr. Gage and Mr. Kleiner. This is not what I wanted to hear on McLaughlin. It, it's interesting, interesting the way you put that. That there's a new normal, and it's not a you know, it's not Michael Lewis's a new new thing. There's, have we reached that point? Getting into your sage outfit, have we reached that point where people could define what the new normal is? No, I mean I. I, I, I um, I don't think so because I don't think the dust has settled. But I, but I think there are certain things that that are true. I mean, there's there's no way the, the interdependency of the global economy is is so clear now, and uh, and so it's it's very difficult to make a decision in one part of the world and not have it have a ripple effect someplace else. And so companies, you know, one of the things that we would say characterizes the new normal is, is the need to, uh, you know, understand the big picture, how, how things are, are affected, uh, how, what the interdependencies are of decisions being made. Can you give and, me, uh, let me, let me interrupt you there, it's an interesting point, and I will play devil's advocate for the sake of making a statement, I don't believe it, I think what's happened, what we've seen is that there is a complete distinction between global capital flows in which garbage packaged in China can get sold as fish product in the U.S. and mortgages packaged in the U.S. can get sold to Korea. But for the sake of, of, of just asking you, an expert in it, do you really believe that, 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 the global econo that the economy is global or that we've seen certain barriers fall with regard to capital flows, and that really is the only change. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that, that I'm, I'm best prepared to answer that question. I think that there are certain aspects of the economy that are global, or at least have a global impact. But obviously, there are very significant differences across geographies in, in the, you know, how the economy works and all of that. Our point is that Companies do need to compete in a, in a flatter world. There's there's going to be further globalization and further consolidation of industry, and as that happens, uh, that has implications for the way you manage your people, for the kind of skills you need, for the way you structure work, for the things you need to reward, all of those things. And so, so you know, that, that's the point that that the way it used to be, you can't keep operating. Uh, with a set of assumptions, because so many of the assumptions that, that have driven decisions in the past are, are no longer valid as, as uh, ways to, to guide decision-making. Yeah. So you have to rethink the assumptions that you use for how you make decisions. So the definition of the new normal is, in part, and I agree with you, the dust clearly hasn't settled, and that was a, a very good response. But in, the, in attempting to do the new normal, can... Can the HR profession in the midst of it, I mean, we clearly will have a new leadership, I guess, in the banking community. Um, is what has happened in establishing the new normal is that we need a new group of, um, uh, of HR professionals? Well, I think it's, it's, this is a, an incredible opportunity for HR to step up and really make the kind of difference in business performance that it's capable of, but really hasn't demonstrated in a lot of cases, uh, and and it's because it's an opportunity to say, look, things have really changed. All the assumptions that we've used in the past, 
So let's rethink. Uh, let's take advantage of what we know can make a real difference, and, and let's try some things that maybe we were reluctant to try in the past because there wasn't the, 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 the uh, motivate, you know, why fix it if it wasn't broken? Well, now everything's broken. And um, it, it, it's a great opportunity for HR to step up and, and really demonstrate the value that, that it can bring to an organization's success. Uh, we're, we're coming into our closing minutes here, and I have two two other areas. The interesting concept of the new normal, and um, if you come out with another book in '09, maybe we define that as we as we move into the into 2010. Um, the new workforce. Mm -hmm. It strikes me that uh, in speaking with uh, a number of people about the impact of the World Wide Web, uh, information flows, and a whole series of things like that, that the generation of which I am a part, the boomers who were thought of to be uh, holding a particular role in history, I think will be consigned uh, to, the, uh, to the, if not the dustbin, at least like the dinosaurs, what happened to them all in 2008. Uh, is, is there something to be said about the new generation that's coming up? that will have an impact on human capital? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, this is the first time in history where companies have sometimes four generations of workers working together uh, side by side. And uh, if you look at, in general, the mindset of those four generations, they have different expectations, they have different values around work, they have different needs, they have different motivators, and it's fairly typical for companies to have, you know, one-size-fits-all approaches to managing that. And what we say is that uh, companies should take into account these generational differences and, uh, and adapt their policies to get the, the, the most engagement, the most productivity, the most performance out of all of these different segments of their workforce. And the companies that do that well will, will uh, exceed, and the companies that don't will not have a whole lot of good people staying because, because those, as we get fewer and fewer workers who have the skills and capabilities that we need, they're going to be in a position to be a lot more picky in where they work, and they're going to be attracted to organizations that, that uh, demonstrate a sensitivity to the unique needs of, that, you know, that they have. Uh, yeah, I, I get that, and I guess that that is, uh, it's a good business you're in if if you can convince people that they don't get it, and the likes of Booz and Company can help them get where they want to go. I would uh, suggest that if you had, if you had a compensation directed program, and you figured out what you wanted to pay people for, that that would modify their behavior more than than anything else. But yeah, what do I know? Well, you'd be surprised how little difference compensation makes in, in motivation in most jobs. I mean, in a sales job, it makes a lot of difference. But for most people, people are not motivated as much by money as, as you would expect. Uh, they're mo much more motivated by how they're treated, by the perceived opportunity that they have, uh, that the, the coaching and the training and the development that they get. These are the things that if you look at all the data around employee engagement, and there's a very high correlation of employee engagement and business performance, the, the, the most engaged employees are not engaged because of the money. Yeah. The, the, the money has to be competitive and reasonable or they won't stay. But once it is, it isn't money that really uh, engages them. It's, it's really whether they're treated with respect, whether they have the chance every day to do their best work, whether they are, feel like they're growing and they have opportunities, uh, future opportunities to grow. It's those things that make the most difference. And, and, uh, and that's another thing that many companies don't get. They think that, well, if they just throw money at something, it's going to change behavior. But it, it, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, last question for you, Laird, and you've been very generous with your time here, and I appreciate it very much. Booze and Company, strategy and business reader here. Speaking, Paul McLaughlin speaking with Laird Post on Capturing the People Advantage, Thought Leaders on Human Capital. It is a book. It is available. How can people pick this up if they are so inclined? Well, actually, uh, they can go to the booze.com, it's B-O-O-Z.com uh, 
website, and they can download a PDF copy for free. Wow. Uh, so that's an advantage for listening to McLaughlin at work. Yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, the last question is one that I've asked frequently, particularly over the last uh, two months. In your opinion, is America, this magnificent America, as Len Bell put it, as a retiree in Florida watching his fixed income disappear, um, is if from a human capital capturing the people advantage, the, the people advantage, as is the type, the, the title of the reader, uh, is America still the shining city on the hill? Is, is this is where is this where the world looks for, looks to for this kind of uh, talent growth? Well, I think I think uh, if you look around the world, America is the most advanced uh, country as it relates to people practices and. Uh, uh, companies from the Middle East, from Asia, from Latin America, they all are very interested in what American companies are doing, and uh, so much of what they do and how they manage their workforces is driven by the practices that have been uh, proven to work in America. So uh, I think in this particular area, America still has a very significant lead and can, and can really leverage this because, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about how to improve business performance. And the more companies that do this, the better uh, America's overall competitive picture is going to be. Great. I think that's uh, and, and the competitive advantage, as has been pointed out, is, is uh, people driven. Uh, again, and finally, my guest has been Laird Post, the principal with Booz and Company, the publication, strategy, and, and business reader entitled Capturing the People Advantage. It does have specific examples in a Q&A format of a number of companies that are highlighted as people who get it and do it right. I think there is, a, uh, as, as Laird pointed out, there is a new normal that is emerging. We don't exactly know what it is, but that's what makes life exciting. Um, it, on the East Coast, I think it's a depressing time coming out of 08 because we're not sure whether we're bottomed out, but people's mindset certainly hasn't bottomed out. And yet in a big country like this, there's a different mindset in, in middle America and perhaps out on the West Coast. Well, Laird, you've been very generous. We're very grateful. And uh, good luck with capturing the people advantage and good luck with uh, Booze and Company. Thanks so much and thanks for having me. So here we are, Paul McLaughlin, back with you to conclude. What do you draw from this? Well, one of the things you draw, as I pointed out in the beginning, which did not happen in the midst of our conversation, is that here a book has been created, positioned as capturing the people advantage, thought leaders on human capital. And I'm not dwelling on it, except when you look at the book, the business books, how to, when you read about people in government who are now setting our financial services course, when you look at people involved in real estate, and again, topically, I'm breaking all the rules. I'm breaking all my rules that I'm supposed to do right here on McLaughlin at work, but I, I can't help it. It's the way I am. One of those, um, you know, make this timeless. Well, I heard last night, so this would make it uh, the 11th of January on 60 Minutes, the first time that I have ever heard a description of why the oil prices spiked the way they did. That description was given by, in a discussion with a couple of uh, uh, traders and somebody from the Petroleum Services uh, uh, Association that monitors these things. It was all based on speculation. And we've been, all based, that was their contention, and they certainly seem to have metrics to prove it. My point is that for the past year, since the gyrations in oil prices have uh, in the market, the futures, the commodities, how people make money on investment, investing in commodities, all of that, I have never seen. I read reasonably widely. I'm sure it was in other places. But in places like the Times and the Wall Street Journal, I've never heard the same kind of description and laying it at the feet of the speculators. It was clearly a speculator's bubble. And yet the people who were making money on it and who were hoping to pass along those purely investment, paper, computer-driven gains and winnings and money that they pocketed, which left the system, had nothing to do with supply and demand. And yet there, are, there were still people, as recently as Christmas parties, were talking about the oil prices purely a 
an issue of, 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 of uh, supply and demand. The last point associated with this is the following. I see today two conflicting headlines in the Wall Street Journal and in the New York Times regarding Citigroup, Citibank, its chairman of the board, its chief executive officer. I think that they're one of the reasons we don't have change, this is McLaughlin at work, my opinion, listen up if you want it, is that there are a lot of people in a lot of industries who don't have the answers. The kingpins who got us into this problem, who watched the, the train wreck happen, simply have no clue. Or they have already saddled a horse and they don't see another horse in the barn that they can think that they can saddle better. And they're working out the time, they're going to make their money, and <clears throat> they don't have a clue how America is going to get out of this. I don't think Mr. Obama does either, but I think he's got a better chance with the rest of us because at least we may follow him if there's enough faith. Faith restored will make a difference in 2009. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, looking forward already to the next episode of McLaughlin at work here on webtalkradio.net, the work wonk, your audio guide to the workplace. Thanks for listening. Next week, 